Um, we are in Matthew's Gospel. For those of you who are new with us, we've been trucking along in Matthew's Gospel for a little while now. We have been in chapters 8 through now 10. We're going to just kind of inch into chapter 11. So there are some black Bibles around the room. If you would grab one of those or turn your Bible on on your phone, or maybe you brought your Bible with you, I hope you did. Um, let's open them up to Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. We're starting kind of in a, a stretch of thought here, depending on how your Bible is broken down. Matthew 10, 32 through 11, 1. I just want to read this and lay it before us, get it percolating in our minds and in our hearts. Jesus is giving his disciples some mission instructions here, and we're kind of midstream, mid-thought. And he says in verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. For I, haven't come to set a, for I have come rather to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who, uh, him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, last week, uh, as we began... Um, we recognize that it, it was part one of an insider conversation between Jesus and his, and his 12 apostles or 12 disciples. And he began to extend his own message and his own mission to these 12. And, and, and their teaching and their example then would set a course for all disciples who would come after them. And Jesus instructed them by setting up specifics and by setting up limits for them. There were certain things that he wanted them to do, and there were certain things that he wanted them not to do. And then he alerted them to the costs, he alerted them to the fears that were associated with close allegiance to him. And so today what we're doing in kind of part two of his mission instructions to these disciples is we, we are going to listen in on that conversation and learn for ourselves. And so while it is an insider conversation, and the, and the instructions that he gives are specific to his apostles and his disciples. They're not limited to his apostles and disciples then. There are things for us to learn as we listen in and to take into our own hearts as we carry the message of Jesus by living on the mission of Jesus as well. And so I want you to know this. We are in a long tradition of loyal disciples who value Jesus Christ above all. That's where we stand. Here's the big idea this morning for us. Jesus wants his disciples to understand the value of valuing him supremely. 
Jesus wants his disciples to understand the value of valuing him supremely. We start in verse 32 where he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus has been, he's kind of mid-sentence here. He's he's warning his disciples about the cost, what it's going to mean to stay true to him. People are going to do some disgraceful stuff. They're going to be mocked. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be shamed publicly. Even in that, Jesus' word to them is, fear not. Your God will see you through. Even in death, you will be okay. That's his word to these disciples. And then he offers them a contrast. He says, those who acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Those who deny me, I'm going to deny before my Father in heaven. So for those who acknowledge Jesus, he acknowledges before Father in heaven. That's speaking of unbroken oneness. Life goes on in relationship with our Father. But if we deny him, we break that. And we will be denied before our Father. We will not have oneness with God. He's he's saying here that there's a worse fate than persecution. Count the cost. There's a worse fate for disciples of Jesus than persecution. It's to be renounced by him before our Father. It's to be denied. To be denied by Christ is to be excluded from fellowship. It's a stark warning. It's a hard word. It's hard for us to take in. And that, to be denied by Christ, to be denied by our Father, is worse than persecution or death at the hands of men. Um, In the words of a theologian named R.T. France, the disciple must choose which solidarity he prefers. So think about this. If you're a disciple, you must choose which solidarity you prefer. Do you prefer solidarity with men in this life or with Jesus before our Father in heaven? Now, I get that death can be a serious fear for us. Not downplaying that at all. Uh, especially when we consider all that we have to live for. There are a number of new babies in the room, new parents in the room. You're considering all that you have to live for. There are a number of us who are just graduating school or heading into a career field or, 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 or you, you're, you're having grandchildren before you. There's so much for you to live for. You're thankful for the gift of life. You're thankful for the life that you're living. And there is so much in front of you that you have to live for. I've been thinking about death and mortality quite a bit lately. I'm, I'm, I'm fully into middle age. I turn 44 next weekend and I'm just thinking thinking about, like, I'm just, my body's not what it once was, and, and I'm, I'm, like, I have aging parents, and I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about all that I have to live for, but I'm also thinking about death and mortality. Um, but even that, for me, like, I, I've got time to consider these things. It's different than deny Jesus or die violently in a matter of minutes. It's a different kind of consideration. Um, I encourage you, has anyone just read by way of maybe a devotion or by way of just exploring your faith, have you ever read the stories of the martyrs? 
people read stories of martyrs? I, if you have not read stories of martyrs, you're like, why do I want to read the stories of people who are about to die? That sounds pretty depressing. It can be, and it can be incredibly strengthening to your faith to consider people who have gone before you under threat of death or pain or mocking or shame or persecution or loss of family and to consider their way of life. Reading the stories of the martyrs is an exercise that will absolutely build up your faith in Christ. One thing that's overwhelmingly similar in the stories of Christian martyrs is that they are regularly offered to be let off, to be let go, if they will just renounce their faith and renounce their faithful redeemer. It's an overwhelming uh, similarity in these stories. Uh, There's a, a, a martyr who lived in the uh, second century, first and second century, his name's Polycarp. Um, he, Polycarp was a, a disciple of the apostle John. John wrote our gospel of John, the letters of John, and also Revelation, the last book in our Bibles. Polycarp is the second generation disciple here. So Jesus discipling John, John discipling Polycarp. He was, uh, he was commissioned as an elder or a bishop of the church of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. He lived from about 69 to 155 AD. And there were a number of different persecutions that broke out over his lifetime. Uh, but for some reason, it wasn't until his 86th year of life that he was brought before a Roman proconsul and pressured to deny his Faith. And so they, they, they kind of, the proconsul um, in this Roman city sends out word that they want to arrest Polycarp, his friends and servants, this church community, they catch wind of it. They, uh, they encourage him to flee, and reluctantly he does so. He goes out into the countryside. Well, they keep coming for him. They keep looking for him. Tradition says that he was actually sold out by a servant or a deacon in their community, and he was arrested, and he was brought before the proconsul in Rome. And he was pressured before a a large crowd who wanted to see him die. He was pressured to deny Jesus Christ. This proconsul, this Roman proconsul, he he pressured Polycarp to deny the Lord Jesus and instead swear his allegiance to Caesar. And this is what Polycarp said, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who died for me? The proconsul threatened him. He said, I've got wild beasts. I'm going to throw you to them. If you don't change your attitude, Polycarp, call them. 86-year-old man. The proconsul says, if you make light of the beasts, I'll have you destroyed by fire. Polycarp, the fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There's a fire you know nothing about, the fire of judgment to come and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. Soldiers grabbed Polycarp to nail him to a stake and to have him burned, but Polycarp stopped them and he said, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre or on the stake unmoved without the security that you desire from nails. He prayed aloud, the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. 
he did not die, deny the Lord Jesus. A guy named Dr. Todd Johnson, he's a professor of global Christianity and mission at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He estimates that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last 2,000 years. So those are big numbers, let them sink in. 70 million people, Christians, martyred, killed before their time because they would not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. 70 million. Half of those have been murdered in the 1900s. 35 million from 1901, 1900 to 1999. He estimates as well, and, and some of the numbers vary here, that between the years 2000 and 2001 and 2010, um, between the years 2001 and 2010, and about 900,000 between 2011 and 2020. So about 2 million people between 2000 and now. Martyred Christians, martyred for not denying their faith. Here's the point. Based on the accounts that we have, a great number of these martyrs were pressured to deny Jesus Christ. Instead, they depended, they, they depended rather on his steadfastness, his mercy instead. They loved the way, they loved the truth, they, well, they loved the life all the way through, I use that language intentionally, their deaths. They loved him all the way through their deaths. They valued Jesus Christ in the face of death supremely. Fear not, even in our death, our Father holds us fast. Even in our death, he holds us fast. There will be conflict. There will be temptation to deny Jesus, and it will be strong, and it will be foul. May we also maintain and value and maintain our allegiance to the one who is supremely valuable. Here's my second point right up out of the text this morning. Allegiance to Jesus brings conflict even to our closest relationships. Allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ brings conflict even in our closest relationships. Look at verses 34 through 39. He says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Now, if he's a mere human, he's a psycho for saying something like this. But if he is truly God, we must take him at his word. In verse, uh, so he's prepping his disciples here. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard. Some really tough things are coming your way. You're going to be dragged before councils. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be pressured over and over and over again to deny me. And even your own family is going to perhaps hate you, sell you out, have you murdered on my account. In verse 34, though, he throws a pretty significant curve, I think. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. So I'm thinking, like, wait a second. 
What do we rehearse every Christmas? We rehearse the facts of Jesus' birth. We rehearse the angel's announcement to the shepherds that this Messiah is coming. And the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or we recite, we remember Isaiah chapter 9. We spent some time in Advent this last season looking at these titles for this Christ figure. The the, um, text says that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the text goes on to say, and of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end. But Matthew records Jesus telling these disciples not to to think something. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. So uh, what do they, what do we do with this statement? What do they, what do we do with this idea of a sword that Jesus says that he brings? It's It's a great question. Here's an interpretive principle that we use of the scriptures when we're trying to figure out hard sayings in the Bible. We begin with passages that are most clear on a topic. What related to that topic is most clear. Let's settle there and then let's carefully and progressively work our way out to the topics or the the texts of scripture that have something to say about that, but they're a little bit less clear or they throw us into confusion. So where we seem to find contradictions in the scripture, let's settle on what is very clear and then let's move to what's less clear. Now, if you, if you spend much time in the scriptures at all, you come to know that God cares deeply about your family relationships. Honoring parents, honoring our family of origin and trying to keep unity as much as it um, depends upon us is a really big deal in the scriptures. From Moses all the way through the apostles, this idea of honoring our parents is right there. But what about the family relationships that tempt us to dishonor Christ? What then? What do we do? I think R.T. France, a commentator on Matthew, is really helpful here. He says, the peace that Messiah brings is much more than the absence of fighting, which men dignify with this word peace. So we tend to define peace as the absence of fighting or conflict, but rather peace here, this idea that peace is talking about, or that Jesus is talking about here is a restored relationship with God. And the bringing of this peace, a restored relationship with God, paradoxically, conflict is inevitable. It's going to be inevitable. Not all will accept it. Not all will accept him. Jesus does not come to poison our family relationships, but rather he brings a division, regrettable but inevitable, between those who respond to his mission and those who reject it. Like that's the reality of the life that we live when we swear our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Frederick Dale Bruner, another commentator that I use a lot in Matthew, he says, a few will believe the truth of Christ, but most will oppose it. Jesus is aware of this demographic fact, and therefore he says boldly that it is his purpose to bring this conflict of decisions. He so prefers loyal discipleship and mission to all false social accommodation that he's willing to say that he came in order to divide. So our decision for Christ brings division at times. Now, my temptation is to try to alleviate the tension. 
I think that's our temptation. When we come to paradoxes in Scripture, we want to resolve this. We want to tie it up with a bow. We want to do away with all of the tension. But I think as disciples who are loyal and submissive to God's word, we we must hold the tension in some of these paradoxes. They're not contradictions. They're paradoxes. They're, They're two things that seem opposed that are simultaneously true. Now, I know for a fact that there are many of you in this room who have challenging relationships with your families on account of your relationship with Jesus Christ. I know for a fact I've heard your stories. So it's one thing for you to say that you follow Jesus, but when allegiance to him and when when allegiance to Jesus's ethic brings you into conflict or discord with your family and their functional ethic, whatever it might be, you have come to realize that sparks fly, misunderstandings abound. Disciple of Jesus, are you a disciple of Jesus? Stay true to Jesus no matter the conflict. Count the cost. What does it look like for you to decide, I will stay loyal to him and his word no matter the conflict? When decisions like these are made, we need to know, you need to know that you will be made to feel irrational. And that sense of irrationality will bubble up within you and it'll be put on you from the outside as well. So you're going to have a kind of anxiety that comes up within you where you're like, am I overthinking this? Should I really just blur the lines here? And that kind of questioning is going to come up within, but also it's going to be put on you potentially from people on the outside. Well, come on. It's not that big of a deal. Value family over this. Value family over this. The most rational decision that we can possibly make is to give our full allegiance to Jesus Christ, the creator and redeemer of our souls. The worthy person is the one who stays true to Jesus in this text. It's the one who stays true to him, whether in the form of a cross that brings death or whether in the form of conflict that brings division, we will find the life that we were made for by staying true to the one who, while we were faithless sinners, gave his own life to draw us in, to bring us into his heart. Persecution broke out in the second century in Carthage, northern Africa. The the picture on the screen is a a famous martyr story here of a woman named Perpetua. Uh, She was in her young 20s. She was newly married, and she had a newborn. Um, She was, on account of her faith in Christ, she was thrown into prison and then kind of switched around from prison to prison, from some really dank conditions to others that were better for her. She was actually allowed to keep her baby and to continue nursing her child. And while she was in prison, she had a vision from the Lord showing her that she would soon die on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, family tensions for her. She was from a well-known family in Carthage, a prominent family, and family tensions began to fly. And her father visited her in prison. And he, uh, the first time he visited her, the tradition says that he beat her uh, pretty significantly. Uh, He showed back up, and this time he tried to reason with her. And he pleaded with her and he said, do not abandon me to, the, to, the, to be the reproach of men. So don't shame me. You're shaming me. 
He said, think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Her brother was also in prison. One of her brothers in prison with her. Think of your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to, to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. He pleaded with her, do not, your, he, your pride actually will destroy all of us. Others urged her to sacrifice to the emperor and the Roman gods. Tradition also says that her father was beaten on account of being related to her. So he started to suffer dishonor, physical brutality, violence because of her confession. So others urge her, just sacrifice to the emperor, sacrifice to the Roman gods, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your kid, but she would not yield. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. She continued to repeat. Eventually, she's led into the arena. She's scourged. She's, she's whipped um, violently along with the other prisoners, these Christians who valued Jesus above all. And she was the very, tradition says, she was the very last one to die. One account of her death says that she screamed as she was stabbed between the ribs by a novice gladiator whose hand was shaking. She noticed his hand shaking. She grabbed his sword hand. She lifted the sword, the blade, to her own throat. This is how this young 20-something woman embraced her death and her life forever with her Lord of Lords, even in our deaths. God will see us through. So, family, uh, may we, as the people of God in 2022, while this isn't our reality now, it could be re our reality in coming years and coming decades. We don't know. It could be the reality of our kids. May we also resolve to value above even our own family the one who is supremely valuable. May we make that decision now. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus, in verses 40 through 42, he starts to talk about reception. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, but he also starts to talk about uh, rewards as well. I've been chewing on verses 40 through 42 the last few days. There's so much good news packed in here. Whoever receives you, he says to the disciples, receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There, there's so much good news packed in here because it's the good news of God's gracious acceptance and his approval. Bitter opposition is not the whole story for followers of Jesus. Family division is not the whole story. The verb here, receive, whoever receives you, receives me, it indicates this reception as a guest. You're receiving a kind of welcome. The noun here, reward, indicates pay. It indicates wages. Whoever receives you, whoever welcomes you, welcomes me. Whoever welcomes you, welcomes me and will receive a sort of payment, a sort of wage, a sort of reward here. 
So he's saying essentially, God himself is welcoming all who receive him and will give people, give us a payday that we do not deserve. And the payday is life forever with him in his presence. There are four links in this chain in verse 40. Whoever indicates just a person, anyone. Whoever receives you, you there indicates the disciples. Me there indicates Jesus. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me also receives the one who sent him, the Father. So what Jesus is doing here is beginning to stitch a thread that will be pulled throughout the centuries, disciple after disciple after disciple after disciple, preaching the good news of Jesus and being received by people, that message being received. God himself is coming to these people, to these households, through these messengers. Literally, the presence of God is coming to anyone who receives his message. He gives a payday that people do not deserve. Now, verse 42 here shows God's heart toward the smallest good deeds given to the smallest of people in the name of Jesus. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Leon Morris, he says, notice that Jesus is speaking of the smallest conceivable gift to the most insignificant of people. The gift is that that of no more than a cup of cold water. No smaller gift can easily be conceived. Even the smallest gift, given with the right motive, doesn't go unnoticed by God. And the gift is made to one of these little ones, to one only. And that, from, that one from the class of little ones. Jesus is not speaking of a small service rendered to a great person, but of a small service rendered to a small person. The word little may mean no more than small in size. Some have taken it here to mean little children. Jesus certainly took a deep interest in children, but in this context, it seems clear that he is speaking of insignificant persons who are his followers, whether they are children or not. The big idea is the supremely valuable one makes his home with the greatest of people and the most insignificant and undeserving of people. God himself guarantees that we will get to live with him. And so we must not lose heart and lose the race before us. Now, some of us, sometimes our situations, sometimes our seasons, sometimes our circumstances, they, they limit us and they constrain us. So oftentimes we want to do more. We want to give more. We want to go. We want to proclaim. We want to be um, missionary people across the oceans, across the street, into our families. Sometimes um, circumstances dictate that, that not all that we want we're able to do. And in that, if that's you, if you find yourself in a stage and a season of life, I, I want to urge you to aim for unwavering loyalty and commitment. But sometimes there are seasons in life, disciple, where all that we have is the ability to receive. Now, you know better than I do if you're trying to get off the hook in this moment. Like if the Spirit of God is saying something, he's calling you to go and you're using this kind of little aside here, like, oh, okay, I don't have to. No, 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 that's on you. Above all, obey and live in a way that is loyal and allegiant to the Lord Jesus. 
So do some wrestling, do some business with your own soul, with your own kind of inner voice, inner person. Are you, are you trying, are you looking for a loophole or are you not? But sometimes all that we have is the ability to receive. So receive and value Jesus joyfully. Give him what you do have. Respond to him. Give him your loyalty. Be honest about your limitations. Open your hands and receive him. He is the prophet's reward. This is kind of a funny saying. It's probably unique to their time. You get a prophet's reward or a righteous person's reward. Jesus Christ is the reward that he's speaking of here that is a prophet's reward. He is the reward spoken of as a righteous person's reward. He is our reward. And so in closing, I just want to say this. Like Paul, like Polycarp, like Perpetua, may we too be able to say because of the Holy Spirit in us, the time for our departure is close. Whenever that comes, whenever that is upon us, may we be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul is writing here to Timothy, but he's also speaking of us. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing, to all who have loved his reality. Chapter 11, verse 1. Jesus finishes his mission instructions here to these disciples. And he says, he finished, his, he finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. What is the Spirit of God asking for from you in light of allegiance to Jesus? Where are you? What are the pressures? What are the temptations? Do you recognize, is the Holy Spirit testifying to your own spirit? He's calling me to more. He's calling me to reset my allegiance. He's calling you potentially to reconsider your allegiance. Is your heart cold? Is it dull? Now, I, I, I talk often about just my own struggles. And in our prayer gathering this morning as we were, as we were prepping, this has just been a reality for me. I've talked about it a little bit, but over the last 2022, really, like prayer like extended times with the Lord have been really hard for me. They've been hard because I don't really want them. And I know that I don't really want them because I don't prioritize them. What's so tragic about this is that I legitimately receive a paycheck to prioritize the word and prayer. And I've said it over and over and over again. I am on the struggle bus. I can feel the, the, the temperature of my allegiance to Jesus based on how I am living and my attitudes and my actions throughout the day. I can, I can sense that they're cool. I can sense that I'm, I'm struggling. I can sense that I need to ask for your prayer. I can sense that I need to humble myself and make time 
and prioritize it and quiet my own soul, not just one day, you know, because the guilt follows us closely behind at times and then we can kind of relieve that and then we go on about, but, about our days. But like I need, there's reformation in my interior life that I recognize that I need. And so I stand before you asking for your prayer and I stand before you as one who is like you, who struggles and struggles and struggles regularly. He's calling me to allegiance by quieting myself to hear his voice and quieting myself to give him the worth that is due his name. He has called me uniquely to, to, to my opportunity to be an elder among you at all of life. And that's what he's calling for for me. And I want to ask, what is he, like, what is he saying to you? Where are you? I just want to create a little bit of, of time here. Actually, RJ and Thad, if you, guys could, if you guys could come up, I just want to create some space for us to just consider before the Lord. How is he speaking to you? If you could just play something quiet. Just give us two minutes of reflection. Let's just consider, like, what is he saying? Let me pray for us. Father, I believe that you are speaking. Even in this moment, um, not a prepared statement by any stretch of the imagination, didn't see it coming, but I recognize before your people, before your spirit, before your son, before you, that reformation is needed. My allegiance in some ways is cool. Holy Spirit, in your kindness, would you preach to your people this morning who are listening in and considering for themselves? We came here to hear from you. How are you calling us to allegiance? How are you calling us to loyalty? How are you calling us to value you, the one who's supremely valuable overall? Would you speak, please?